what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Mike Little is the co-founder of WordPress, the website builder and content management system that powers more than 40% of the web. He also runs zed1.com, a WordPress specialist company providing web development training and consultancy. Mike runs the award-winning I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here program, online student-led resource connecting school pupils considering a career in science, technology, engineering or mathematics with scientists through real-time web-based chats. He's worked on a number of UK government WordPress sites, including that of Number 10 Downing Street from 2008 to 2010. Most importantly, of course, he's a patron of Humanists UK. Mike, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Uh, Thank you for having me. Now, Mike, um, you're best known for the development of WordPress. And so Mm. I think just in case we have listeners who are not completely up to speed, on every aspect of technology to do with the internet. You might tell us a little bit, first of all, about what WordPress is. Uh, Okay, yes. So um, WordPress is a piece of open source software that um, allows you to easily create a website or fairly easily to create a website. Um, It's been going for, in internet terms, a really long time, so 18 years now. Wow. and one of the key things that we set out to do when we first created WordPress was to, as we phrased it, democratize publishing. Um, so the idea being that it made it easy for someone who was not very technical. Originally, you needed a little bit of technology, but not too much, could have a voice on the web, could very simply create a website, a blog at the time, as it as it did originally, and yeah, share their thoughts with the world, set up a business site, all kinds of things that that uh, that were enabled by WordPress. Um, and it's grown; it's grown incredibly uh, to cover, uh, to some statistics, um, more than forty percent of the top ten million websites use WordPress in some way. Anyone who's listening who's made a website has probably used WordPress, and. Everyone who's listening has been on a website made with WordPress. That's pretty much certain, isn't it? Almost certainly, yeah. yeah. So it's that pervasive. And of course, what we're really interested in on, on the, in, in this podcast is the values behind that. Because, I mean, already in what you've said, there's some exciting ground to cover um, because you've talked about giving people a voice and you've talked mm-hmm. about democracy, democratization of the internet. Were those two things important to you as you developed this platform, this, this way for people to speak? Um, they were. So um, originally, back in uh, early 2000s, as I decided to look into this blogging thing that people were getting into, there were a few different uh, pieces of software that you could use at the time. And having looked at them, the one that I chose was one that was called B2. So before WordPress, there was a thing called B2. 
And the reason, one of the reasons that I chose it was that it was open source. And it's something that I've been passionate about since the late 80s when I first uh, came across, well, before the term open source existed, but the concept of free and open software where you could actually see the source code and, and know how it worked. And that was fundamental to the decision that I made to go with the B2 as it was at the time. And probably a year or so, 18 months after I started using it, the guy who was responsible for that software disappeared off the net. And there were a few people using that software at the time, maybe about a thousand people, something like that. And one of the uh, users who I'd interacted with on the support forums for the software wrote a blog post using B2, and he called it the blogging software dilemma. And he just talked about the fact that He'd looked through these various different pieces of software. He decided on B2. The guy responsible for it had disappeared off the net. And he said, basically, because it was open source, he could take that, fix the bugs that we knew were in it, and carry on and enhancing it. If he got run over by a bus, someone else could take over. And I responded to that blog post with a simple comment that basically said, Matt, if you're interested in forking B2, which is that process of taking that open source software, count me in. And from that comment on a blog post started the project that eventually became WordPress. And that key fundamental to it was that open source, that openness to it that allowed us to take the existing code and make changes to it and distribute it to other people. And what do you think it was that made you feel so strongly about that, about the desirability of people having ready access to this? I guess really my my real passion for open source or for, for uh, free software started in the 80s when I first came across the concept of the uh, GNU software, which was started by a chap called Richard Stallman. And he started it because when he was at university learning to code, the computers that were in uh, the universities at the time were very much about about research and enhancing kind of the students' ways of working. It was, you know, uh, early 70s type of time. And at the time, most of the money in computers, as they were, was all about the hardware. And the software was kind of just something that came with it to enable it to be used. And in particular, as a university might upgrade their hardware, they would have their local people modify the software to work with the new hardware. And this was just fairly standard way of behaving. And then these computer companies started realizing that they could make money out of the software as well and started putting restrictions on. And Richard Stallman and a few others were really cheesed off with this they got used to this idea of being able to just modify the software to make it control the hardware better or differently and suddenly they weren't allowed to do that and that was the spark for him and he eventually created the uh, GNU public license which was a which is described as a a copyright hack it's a legal hack whereby you use the standard Geneva convention copyright laws to license the software that you create to the world. And then you use the licensing laws, which is what most people 
don't distinguish between licensing and copyright, but you then give grant the world a license to use the software in whatever way they want to be able to modify the software. So you give them the source code so that they can do that to be able to share the software with their neighbors and whoever they want, and also to be able to share those modifications. But the key thing is that the almost sole restriction is that you cannot then restrict anyone else's rights who you give it to. So when you benefit from it and make something that's better from it, you can pass it on, but you can't restrict someone else's rights to do the same. And crucially, there's not any mention of money in these rights and restrictions. You're qu it's quite fine to sell this software that you've obtained for free and enhanced but then you can't restrict anybody else's right to do the same or to give it away for free. So you actually retain the copyright. And that's the crucial part, isn't it? The development of, of that that you can then share and then it can share further. It's like a sort of evolution, almost cooperative evolution of a, a product. It is, absolutely, which is what's really odd in this technical world that we live in. So this whole open source philosophy approach really is extremely important to you. Are there other applications of it other than in software there are yeah so there are science one great example from last year was that um, someone open sourced a ventilator design that allowed people to create ventilators for something like 400 pound 400 dollars worth of off-the-shelf parts versus the twenty thousand dollars that they normally cost not sophisticated but at the time they could help save lives. People are uh, open sourcing prosthetic de designs so that people in poorer countries can get limbs for, uh, you know, prosthetic limbs and so on. The whole idea is is uh, incredible. And one of the interesting things about the, one of the definitions of the open source uh, licenses in particular is one that describes itself as free as in freedom, not free as in beer. And in actual fact, microbreweries have been open sourcing beer recipes and Brewdog actually open source all their beer recipes as well, That's which amazing. I think is a clever a clever play on, on that, that concept. And they don't see that um, as in conflict with their commercial interest um, at all isn't it? Not no, I think, philosophy. Yeah, I think the reality is is that is that most people aren't going to homebrew their beer and they'd rather have it done for them and just have the the, the pleasure of drinking it. But some people will and uh, they guess I guess they just see that as a as a good thing. To be honest, software's a little a little bit the same. Some people are not interested in learning how to program, in learning how to run up a piece of open source software on their computer. They'd rather just get something off the shelf or buy something and download it and have it work for them. And it's and it's and it's the same thing. So the the I love the fact that the that concept of making money from it but also sharing it with the world is fine and can coexist. And when you think about your own motivations to get involved in that, would you say it was more about your own support for freedom, i.e. your freedom to operate in this world on the internet? Or was it more altruistic? Were you thinking of people who are, as it were, voiceless, who need this uh, for themselves? I think it was more it was more the altruistic side of it because it just it really gelled with me that this was the right way to, to behave. And in particular, the difference between software, which is essentially a, a free good. Once software has been written, it, it costs a negligible amount to, to copy it and reproduce it. 
And so technically nobody's losing anything if it's reproduced and given away for free. You don't lose anything from it. Sure, people want to earn money from writing software and that's fine. And that's why in particular this license doesn't mention money and allows people to sell their software and so on. But the fact that perhaps for people who can't afford it to be able to get to use that software is it just always has seemed the right thing to do for me. It just really gelled with with this the the idea of of kind of better benefiting society. And it's and it's although it's relative it was at the time it was relatively new being applied to that kind of technology. The whole idea is has been around for a long time. Science is the one that a lot of people think of, this this whole idea of sharing your results, sharing your research, so that future scientists can benefit from that and enhance science for the for the greater good. But a, a, a kind of really classic home-based idea is recipes. When you share a recipe for something to somebody, you're kind of giving it away for free and they might enhance it and change it. And maybe they didn't have that much, you know, they didn't have salt that day. So they put something else in it and then they share that with that, with their family and it goes on and different versions of it get spread around. That's just a concept that nobody would worry about, even though there are recipe books and there are famous TV chefs and all the rest of it. That basic concept of sharing a recipe, the ingredients to make something good it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think people regard that as perfectly normal. And software at the end of the day is a set of instructions to a machine on how to do something. It's a recipe to make a machine do something. And that idea of being able to share it and, and enhance it, it's very similar. It sounds like you think that there's a, there's a fundamental difference in a way between this cooperative sharing and then, you know, developing for the benefit of, of, of others and, you know, passing it on. It sounds like you think there's a fundamental difference between that approach and the approach of marketing something, holding it firmly to yourself for the, for the, for the benefit of yourself and your own profitability and so on, which it sounded a moment ago, you, you were coming very close to sort of implying was a slightly unjust way to operate, um, <laughs> not just un, unfair, but sort of unjust. Um, but, but it also sounds as though, as if you think that, those two things are quite fundamentally different, but also that they can coexist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, key, is that they can coexist. I, you know, I know that we live in a, in a capitalist society, in, in mostly a capitalist world, and we can't get away from that right now. Maybe in, in, in the far, far future, things might change. But, but right now, that's, you know, that's how we operate. That's how we have to... Get you know, earn money to 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 put food on the table and roofs over our head and so on. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when you create an artificial scarcity, that starts to feel morally wrong. And in particular, when you do so in order purely in order to to make money rather than for, you know, I don't know, if you think about um, an artist creating paintings, for example, that's automatically scarce, a single painting, even if they might do a different version of the same one. But when you are manufacturing goods and you, as I say, create those artificial scarcity, whether that's through reducing the number that you, you create, putting the price out of the reach of the majority, or as is the normal case, just not letting anyone else create the same thing that you've done through 
so-called intellectual property laws and so on, it feels morally wrong to me. So you do, you do think that it's unjust. Yeah, yeah. So you're you're sort of you're you're begrudgingly willing to allow these two models to coexist, but you do think actually that the other one, because of this artificial scarcity, is is unjust. I do, yeah, and it's. It's. I find it interesting, for example, that the history of the copyright laws is is uh, quite interesting. The original copyright laws, uh, my, my understanding is that they were granted for, I think it was seven years initially. The idea being, and this was mo- it was only about books at the time. The idea being that an author should benefit from their creation for seven years, and after that the rest of the world should benefit and anybody should be able to reproduce the book and and everybody can benefit from the value of that book which initially were mostly you know non-fictional books uh, certainly so people would uh, would benefit from them because they were about learning things and so on and so you know and that has changed over the years to the horrendous state that we're in now with that uh, driven by disney amongst others that copyright now exists for 75 years after the death of the author which is it's just crazy to me because it is it's 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 restricting the value of that of that creation being shared with the world for purely financial reasons and that's that's the the issue i don't mind that people you know, have to recover the cost of manufacture. I don't mind that people want to gain some advantage uh, from their creativity, from their prowess at the skill that they have. It's when it goes to an extreme that you restrict, you know, you restrict people's access to things for almost in perpetuity, as, as some companies would like to do. That's where, yeah, it feels unjust to me. It feels that you are, yeah, sacrificing the 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 world for your own personal benefit and that's hard for me to reconcile hi this is andrew appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from humanist uk the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. You've got very strong convictions, obviously, about uh, fairness, about the proper use of human creativity not the proper use of it but the proper proper sharing and, and of the mm-hmm. benefits of, of human creativity and, and, and cooperation and so on when you reflect about it looking back at your life what do you think the influences on you were that that gave rise to these strong values are we talking about family here or are we talking about your your, prof- your professional choices that put you into a culture that encourages these values where do you think these very strong and clear if I, I mean you're <laughs> one of the clearest articulations of anyone on the podcast that have a clear set of values i suppose because mm-hmm. it's clearly associated with something that you do all the time and you've got your clearly purpose driven in what you're doing so mm-hmm. you've had to articulate them and, and 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 understand them where do you think they're they've come from for you in your own development that's a really interesting question and not one that i particularly thought about i don't think it particularly comes from family i can say that okay but i think Certainly the idea of sharing knowledge and working cooperatively, I learned at school. So certainly my last two years of school, the the group that I was in 
we effectively did community homework, which was interesting. Nobody did the homework at home. We all used to do it in the first couple of <laughs> the first half hour of school. Um, yeah, we kind of all learned together and shared and and helped each other and reminded each other of stuff. And that I didn't think of it at the time, but that was a, a an interesting time in that we we really genuinely were cooperating and and working together very much as a team to yeah do do our various homeworks and all the rest of it and you didn't think of that as cheating no not at all it was you saw that as cooperation <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know i've heard i've heard since that you know the best way to learn something is to teach it to somebody else and i guess that's kind of what we were doing and yeah we all we are as it happened we all did well <laughs> at school this is a, this is in a sense quite a quite a radical idea, you know, <laughs> that that instead of like you, you you've been subverting systems for a long time. Then in that case, since since since, since a child, it's not just open source software; it's open source homework. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. It's uh, it, it is it is the type of thing, and I think I guess one influence might also be science fiction. So I loved science fiction as a child. I used to buy, I remember going to uh, WH Smith's in the town centre with my with my pocket money and buying, you know, Isaac Asimov books and 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 the like. And put, I think particularly in the sixties into the seventies, a lot of those sci-fi writers, or maybe just the popular ones that I came across, were very much writing about you know utopian type societies sometimes, or at least had those elements in the, the in in the books that they wrote and the stories that they wrote where you know the kind of the original star trek ideal that you know we've moved beyond commercialism we've moved beyond uh, wars and and the differences between countries and so on and i guess that kind of a lot of what i was reading at the time and it all seemed so natural that um yeah, of course, of course we would we would do that. Everybody would share, everybody would benefit, we would, you know, all help each other, everybody pitched in type of thing. I think I guess that was probably a good a, a strong influence as well. I think that's exceptionally interesting because it's I mean it's definitely true that I believe this really strongly actually myself, is that a lot of moral development in children and young people comes from fiction. Mm-hmm. And you know, of all of all types, of all types of fiction, of all types of moral development, but a lot of humanist moral development comes from science fiction. <laughs> that's what I. That's what I definitely believe. And you look at all the science fiction writers, including Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek, who've been members of their 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 humanist organisations in their own countries. Isaac Asimov, yeah. another one you've mentioned there. I think that's sort of true. And you know, I wonder why that is really because it's the it's the. I suppose it's 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 sort of like values, uh, like able to be developed quite purely in a science fiction. You can create mm. a world, can't you? You can create a good world, and you don't have to start yeah. with how things are and write fiction yes. about how things are. You can say, well, this is how things should be. Yeah, yeah, and I think also as soon as you really start thinking beyond the planet, you you have to realize the scale, and and I think it puts humanity in its place as a you know a tiny little part of the whole universe i think it almost to me almost automatically then makes you question kind of any any uh religious oversight any any you know 
bearded god looking down because you you're instantly beyond that you're instantly looking at the science and the reality of the universe and the scale of things and yeah i think it 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 i guess it it makes you yeah think think beyond perhaps your your religious upbringing and 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 question all those limited stories that you were told that that were you know historically a way for people to try and understand the things that they that were bigger than them the 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 storms the weather the seasons and i guess once you think about science think about the the type of yeah the type of world that must ex- or the type of the universe as it as it exists when as science has started to open things up yeah i i to me that almost seemed like that's a natural thing to to follow on is to 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 go beyond those the limited scope of of the the old religious stories of how the world is excellent excellent you mentioned the the the, the future world of star trek which is a very appealing uh, let's just talk about Star Trek for a minute. Which is a very, <laughs> which is a very a- appealing world. You know, it's sort of obviously there's this perfect society on Earth, and you know everyone mm-hmm. in in at least until Deep Space Nine, you know, is perfectly cooperative, and there's this great shared endeavor, understanding the universe and, and all the rest of it. Um, and as you say, you know, there's no money. Everyone's sharing everything. Resources are abundant, and you know, shared according to people's desires. Um, that is quite a utopian view yeah. uh, of the human future. Part of my own struggle growing up is the idea that probably it will never quite be like that. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, there's two personal disappointments. One, that I'll never be a Starfleet captain. And secondly, <laughs> <laughs> and secondly that maybe no one will. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but are you? do you think that that utopian situation is one that's realistically reached or are you more inspired by the idea of it? I think I think it's more it is more the idea. I don't I don't see in in any foreseeable future that being achievable uh given where we are. I I'd I'd like to hope that we could move however tiny the steps might be towards that. Being realistic, I think that the pandemic has probably opened people's eyes a little bit more to some of the imbalances that they've taken for granted. Some of just the 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 way things are or have been at the moment and i i see a lot of articles a lot of people talking about how the return to normal won't be quite returning to the same normal and i and i really hope that's the case i hope that people think about the way things have been the things that that they've automatically done understand a little bit more about how the media and just the normal things that we we've seen every day have influenced the things that they thought were important and how um hopefully for a lot of people they've had some changes in that in the things that they thought were important how they've understood perhaps a little bit more about contact with family dealing with loss and and things like that i've i've i'm hoping that it's changed a lot of people's minds maybe changed a few attitudes overall i don't think there'll be any massive changes but i do hope that a lot of people will will think a little differently maybe behave a little bit differently than they they did 18 months ago so you believe in the possibility of a better world? Yes, definitely. I can definitely say that. Democratic participation, giving people a voice, an open source world, cooperation, 
and inspiration in utopianism. Mike Little, thank you for telling us what you believe. I'm very welcome. Thank you. That was Mike Little telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the fifth episode of the fourth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about humanism, purchase the Sunday Times bestselling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. Mm -hmm.